This is For Your Ears Only, the audio series that takes some deep dives into all things podcasting. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I'm Lance Dan. And this week we're going to talk about audiences. Not you, the audience, but audiences in general, and how they relate to and engage with podcasts in a different way. And to set this up, I'd like to take you back to an evening in October 2014. I'm walking through North London, and outside a music venue there's a long snaking queue of people wearing purple. And they've got cloaks on, they've got outfits, they've got costumes, they've got uh, things over their eyes that make them go black. And it turned out they were queuing for an audio drama, which actually shocked me. Wow. Partly because what on earth were these people queuing for an audio drama? And secondly, what was Welcome to Night Vale and why hadn't I heard of it, given that should be my job? And why weren't you invited to the party? Exactly. And a year later, you and I went, we actually bought tickets and joined the fray of costumed young people to go and hear the recording of Welcome to Night Vale also at the Union Chapel. And that was my first experience of going to a live podcast recording. But first, I think we've got to take that line, that cue, those people, as a symptom of a difference in how people relate to podcasts Mm. to, say, conventional speech radio. Yeah, the audience is qualitatively different, isn't it? People are relating to shows in a very different way with much more involvement, passion, and almost like they're following a band. Mm. And that's what we're going to talk about is trying to identify what makes people feel differently about podcasts. So Lance, what's the evidence that they are different? Well, other than the gigs and the lines of fans, one thing that really stands out is the merchandising that exists around podcasts, which is so discernibly different to any of the products you can buy around conventional speech radio shows. So if, if we went on online now yeah. and grabbed our devices... I've got my laptop right here. You've got your teenage phone that you're going to be Googling yeah. on. Let's just have a look at what um, merch we can find around podcasts and compare it to what might exist, say, around the BBC shows. Okay, I'll, f- I'll focus on radio. You, you focus on podcasting. So I've cheated. I've gone straight to the This is American Life um, merch store. And they've got a serial notebook, which looks kind of like a, your investigative reporter's notebook. Wow. I'm at the BBC gift shop mm-hmm. where they're selling lots of weird stuff that doesn't seem terribly connected to anything audio. There's kind of Doctor Who videos. And also, I have found a, uh, a BBC commemorative royal wedding biscuit tin. Right. Uh-huh. By, Top that, Night Vale. By comparison, uh, we've got a public radio temporary tattoo. Have they got uh, any BBC temporary ta- tattoos there? Um, hold on. I'll ch- I doubt it. Okay, I'm going to the Radiotopia shop. Uh, we've got an Ear Hustle t-shirt. A heart print, a 99% invisible sticker with a what looks like an aircraft carrier on. Okay, I did something fun. I so I did a search for NPR merchandise and I got 800,000 hits. And then I did a, a Google search for Welcome to Night Vale merchandise and I got 1.8 million hits. So all of the NPR shows in terms of merchandise together are totally dwarfed by just Welcome to Night Vale. Hang on, the uh, 99% Invisible uh, notebooks are actually on sale. Oh, God, how much? <laughs> Only five bucks, down from 26. Five bucks? The, the, these are like fan items. These are like a showing people you're a fan. The reason why you'd get a Radiolab mug 
is so that everyone in your office thinks of you as the Radio Lab person. So people want to be associated with these shows. So it's sort of like a band T-shirt that I would have wore when I was nineteen. Yeah. Exactly. And, it, and and you don't find this around the BBC. You know, there's there's no um, call you and yours T-shirts. There's no in-air time tote bags with Lord Melvin Bagg's no. face on them. Could you imagine that? So this is all to do with that freemium economy that seems to fuel podcasting. They're just doing this for the money, right? But it wouldn't work unless they've made the ground fertile for people to want to buy this stuff and feel involved. Fans aren't dupes. They weren't just like, because they're told to go and buy a tote bag, they wouldn't just line up and buy it. They're doing something to create the ground that people want to feel involved. Mm, so they're not just doing it to survive. They have to do it to survive, but in order to get the fans to do it... They have to do something else. They have, they to, have to give to them something. something yeah. And with, this is it. What are, exactly are they doing? Because if you can think, if the BBC tried to do this, they'd find it really, really difficult. I mean, like if you think about someone like Alan Hall, who's a brilliant feature maker it, he, it would be anathema to him to then have to sit at the beginning of each show and personally flog it yeah. and do those Ameri- those messages which you Americans are so <laughs> so it comes so natural to yeah. you to selling things and he's quite critical about the whole process of selling things and, and the way it changes the audio that you make well I mean if you listen to here he's talking about the way that podcasters kind of have recreated the experience of broadcasting into more of a community experience for a long time, we've been saying to people, for example, at Radio 4, you know there is an audience that is much younger than your target audience and you're not really providing anything for them. I mean, and, and it's an audience which is sort of student to 40 rather than over 50. An audience has been missed in the UK but discovered in the States. Um, they were tired with basically what is a, a, a barren desert of... of speech radio or documentaries in the states and they they created something new out of their own passions and i think and it's very much come out of out of out of passion projects you've got to brand it you've got to design it you've got to market it they are designed as more complete products compared to anything that anyone here or in europe has ever had to do you know if you're if you're a british or a european radio feature maker you, you don't have any skills in in product design or branding or marketing all the training in conventional broadcast is that you you have to imagine yourself speaking to one listener whereas um podcast is about a little club a community that mm. forms it's a community i find it a very difficult word what sort of shared interest well because there are listeners but you're right about <clears> the <throat> club thing i mean this is what they'll say they say oh look, this is our podcast hey guys you have to support our mm. podcast if mm. you want it you know well it comes it does in and the states of course it comes down to funding as well because yeah. the funding you know, they, they want you to be in the club because they want you to yeah to keep it put going some money into it yeah yeah are there shortcuts t-shirts yet no that but this that's part of the branding and the marketing and the hustling you know which we're not you know that isn't at the forefront of of what we do So when you listen to this language in the fun drives, it's always about our show. There's a real sense of a collective project of listeners and producers being a part of something. Yeah, it's people want to be associated with a show. I was kind of really struck by an incident when um, uh, my daughter was about nine and I was... Uh, I played a radio lab for the first time, picked out some more suitable ones. And really early on, she kind of said, you know, Daddy, um, uh, this is great. Where, where can I get a T-shirt? And I thought, Dan, that's your first question. <laughs> what is it that made you? Because you could play her hours of Melvin Bragg. And she would never ask for the Melvin Bragg <laughs> like, T-shirt. She didn't just hate me more and more and more, minute by, <laughs> by minute. What is in that show 
that made her think, oh, yeah, this is quite cool and I want to be part of this. So did you buy her a T-shirt? No, they, they, you have to ship them across from Amer- America. They're expensive. <laughs> so how do you think uh, In Our Time would change if Melvin Bragg was flogging T-shirts? I think he'd probably do a runner. The English people, at least the BBC, are so awkward about this. Mm. Anytime they have to sell anything, it's so painful. I think also there's a tradition in American public radio yeah. where you guys are used to selling yeah, things. Yeah, we you? hated it too, if I'm frank. I used to hate the fun drives. But you still did them. We did them, yeah. Whereas and we it, tried to have fun with them too. Whereas we have the license fee, we just force you to pay. So Lance, it sounds like there's a bit of a contradiction here, though, if we think about the way people actually listen to podcasts on their own, completely time-shifted, not a communal experience, with earbuds that block out anybody else trying to communicate with them. We want more of that nice, warm and fuzzy, intimate podcast community in our ears. And that in turn makes our own world more isolating. But yeah, and and in that act of listening, because it's an orphaned media, because you're, it's not live, you're not part of a community, a listening community that's live. Compare it to live radio. When you listen to live radio, you're part of something. There's something going on and someone's talking to you in that instrument and there's potentially hundreds of thousands, millions of people sharing that moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, with a podcast... It's cut off. You're on your own. You're the only person listening to that show at that moment. It's not live. Whatever it is, whatever else it is, it's definitely not live and you're not sharing it in the moment. And your experience is unique. Even if you could say, okay, I've got the new edition of, I don't know, S-Town the minute it came out. And there were lots of people downloading it. The odds of someone having exactly the same audio experience... At that moment, it's it's not going to happen. It's what uh, what Gregory Whitehead, uh, the radio artist, calls um, an electronic play of far-flung bodies, but he would describe it like that, wouldn't he? <laughs> but it's, you're listening to something that has happened with a podcast rather than something that is happening. And that's one of radio's great strengths, right? Mm-hmm. Old traditional radio goes back to Douglas's ideas of people all sat around the fire sharing a moment together. But Lance, don't we get this with listening parties and live gigs? Listening parties are so rare. And podcast gigs, I mean, let's talk about podcast gigs because they're not, they're more of a symptom. They're not designed to draw people in. They're designed for the people who are already in. So you have to be a part of that world for it to make sense, for you to even be there. It's not like you're going to go to a Welcome to Night Vale gig uh, just because you've seen the poster. You're just you're going to go because you know about Night Vale. Even the Radiolab gigs, which did feature animatronic dinosaurs in a band, still had Jad and Robert sat to one side reading scripts. And if anyone's watching were to watch us at the moment, you'd see that you're watching two men reading scripts, not that visually stimulating. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a way of creating an event for the fans, those people who had only known each other digitally, to then know each other in meet space, in real space, and to make those, those relationships physical. So the natural direction this takes me in, Lance, is social media, because podcasters can use it to talk directly to their audiences, right? But are they really talking to the, the podcasters? Or are they just like a crowd at a Shakespeare play, all shouting the same thing at the same time in the same direction? Or a football match where they're chanting together, yeah. Yeah. So, Lance, in the book, you looked at the way lots of major podcasters are using Twitter. What did you find? What we did was we harvested a lot of tweets around both established shows and particularly around up-and-coming shows. The interesting thing was looking at the big shows, looking at the established shows, was how little conversation there was back with the audience. Mm. You'd look at something like Radiolab. They, they retweeted their audience 
but they didn't talk to their audience. Tiny percentage of, of direct communication, less than 1%. Uh, we went down further. We looked at 99% Invisible and Roman Mars, because if you know that, that, that those both those shows are associated with some of the biggest Kickstarters... So you they, would think that they would communicate with an audience. Not at all. I mean, 99% Invisible was weirdly, spookily silent. Wow. Are you sure they know how to use it? It, it, was, it was uncanny. They, and Roman Mars uses it, but mostly uses it like a celebrity. Okay. Which says something about his character. Um, mostly telling us about like where he is and having a coffee with his friends and meeting these people, but not chatting. There's a, it, it's symptomatic about the relationship these people have with their audience and how they conceive of the audience. So what does Jad Abumrad do specifically on his own Twitter account, though? Very little. I mean, for someone with 325,000, uh, he's very, he holds himself back quite a long way. And he talks about this in the interview we did with him, about his relationship with the audience. I mean, I was big on Twitter for a while, but then I mostly sort of stay off it now from, just for my own health. <laughs> um, well, here's how I think about it. I think of it like, um, sort of like you and I talking right now. Like I'm talking to you, but there's some kind of awareness that other people will hear this, you know? Like we're in a bubble at Radio Lab, but a bubble only exists because there's atmospheric pressure that holds it in place. So in some sense, the audience is that pressure. Like you feel the pressure of, of their attention, but you don't actually see them directly. You just kind of feel the force of them. And then every so often you walk out on stage and there they are. And you're like, oh shit, there's, there they are. And then you see them and you realize, oh, it is a community of people. Uh, you never think about them sort of directly, but you definitely feel them uh, in the decisions you make. If you start to look at them as you make decisions, then you make the wrong decisions. You don't make the decisions they want you to make. There is a way in which you have to somehow be aware and unaware at the same time. But there is a sense that like, yeah, they're looming over all of this are the people that will hear it and they are actually the people you serve. But um, they're never in the room with you. And it feels important for them not to be. I think it's different for different shows, but like we're we're by definition like a lab. You know, we're supposed to do things that sometimes they don't want. That's what they want. You know what I mean? So it's like you you have to some you have to make decisions which feel a little bit stupid. You have to. And it's really hard to do that when you're staring in the face of all the people who will either applaud or condemn you for having made that decision. You just like, you get, you lose your bearings very quickly. So it really scrambles my brain to, to, to try and please the audience. So yeah, it's all those things together. It was interesting looking at smaller podcasts, though, wasn't it? Or podcasts on their way up. So Laura and Aramanki, Aramanki um, did a loads of tweeting. He mostly tweeted the word thanks when we looked at him because he just <laughs> announced his uh, Amazon deal. But he was bothering to sit there at home and go, thanks, 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 when everyone was saying well done. What about Casey Wayland and We're Alive? It was interesting because he was really active in talking to his followers. Partly, I think, because he came from this UGC background. And partly, I think, because he learned his craft in front of his audience. This is him talking about how his audience grew and how he worked with fan feedback in the early days. 
I'd say about mid-second season is when we started to finally pick people up. Every person would then tell another person that they enjoyed it, and then it just started to snowball. And then we started to get a couple people who were like, hey, I love this. It was a long time before we actually got a, a decent-sized audience, and I've always had the philosophy of if you build it, they will come. Because literally the first season, I think, had like it felt like less than 1,000 downloads, which for was all of them, for you? all of them when they first came out. Shit, it was it, mean, That's it's, extraordinary. It's incredibly disheartening, too. You have <laughs> To, you have to start somewhere and you have to continually build off of that and, and change things and learn learn how to play the long-term game. How do you write a story that's going to continually rope people in continually week after week? It's, it's a catch-22. It's like, which one do you want to go? Do you want to go with the status quo every week like the Simpsons where it's like the same thing and they, they start over where they ended? Or do you want to start something that actually has to be linear and it's more about the full piece rather than just one than two? The great thing about We're Alive is it's a very small community in some ways. Like we have a very big audience that I have no idea how to communicate with sometimes. Like they're so far, they're not on our social media channels and I don't know how to talk to them, some of our really deep listeners. But those who do come on our forums and those get involved, one of the great things is when We're Alive was first created, I also created a forum and I was able to get everybody's response week after week after week. And one of the great things about that helped me uh, sort of hone my skill set is to figure out when ideas didn't work. Certain characters and elements and things that people had questions about, I was able to see directly. And the great thing about it was, since I was writing it and producing it simultaneously, I was able to insert something later on that clarifies it, that makes it a little bit easier for them. And so the entire process of doing We're Alive, I'm learning. And, and part of the reason I think why the community works so well in the forums is because sometimes I would jump in there and give them hints or give them clues. or I, I try and do a lot of active participation in the, in the audiences just because I love um, users being able to interact with other users because as somebody who creates content, they're creating their own. Having an active fan base is the exact same thing as marketing. It also helps you, and, and it is a two-way road because they are giving you their time, which as a producer, you should never take advantage of. And I think another reason why he, and he isn't necessarily conscious of this, I asked mm. him at a later point, are you doing this because you have no other way to talk to the audience directly because you're a drama show? Yeah. And there's no point where you kind of go, hi, this is Casey Whelan. I need loads of money off you or we've got some gigs coming. And therefore, the voice piece of the show becomes social media because he doesn't want the characters to break the fourth wall and yeah, or, sell T-shirts. T-shirts. Yeah. But he actually said, oh, you know, I'm not conscious of that. But I think that's one of the reasons why it works. And he has to do that. So social media is a way for podcast drama producers to have that kind of direct communication with their audience. But more than Roman Mars, they're engaging in conversation. Whereas Roman Mars doesn't really engage in, con in conversation with his audience. He merely, it's merely a one piece of one-way traffic. Oh, whereas Mankey and Wayland are talking back and forth. They're giving something back. Am I right in thinking that the drama that breaks all this is Welcome to Night Vale? Yeah. And when we looked at their Twitter usage, it was basically all they did pretty much was merch and selling their gigs and weird tweets about the meaning of life and the void and the yeah. universe. So some were coming from in-world, you would say, and some were coming from Fink and Craner flogging gig tickets and T-shirts. I don't think they at all ever talked to the audience directly and chatted to them. Okay. And yet they have the biggest fandom. Here's a montage that demonstrates my point. Tickets are now on sale for our 2018-2019 world tour. Get your tickets. Still crying that this is the first time I will miss a live show coming to my area. You're not... 
coming to Helsinki again this year. Last show you did was amazing. As if it actually says Norwich. Lol! Like all those big places and little old Norwich is on there. What about Canada? Taco Bell. Don't go through that one door next to the bathroom. We don't know where it leads. In my experience, you usually emerge in the lobby of another Taco Bell in Bloomington, Indiana. Lovely place. Bit weird, though. So, uh, what if you go through the door next to the bathroom in Bloomington, Indiana? That's odd. When I tried, I just ended up back in the Taco Bell in Bloomington. New episode 130. This is a story about us, said the man on the radio. And we were pleased, because we always wanted to hear about ourselves on the radio. The story episodes are always great. Got goosebumps at that specific moment in the episode. You know which one I'm talking about. What have I missed? Hey, I'm not finding the new episode where I usually watch it on YouTube. Is it no longer being posted there? Uh, never mind. At Cecil Baldwin III is answering your questions tonight. Post your questions now. Are you aware that you are chamomile tea in human form? How did you start voice acting? Any tips? What about Canada? Only 15 days left to grab a pair of sweatpants that say creepy on the butt. I absolutely, positively must order these. Do they have pockets yet? This is legit my biggest life issue, other than life itself. It's better they don't have pockets. You wouldn't want your hands to suddenly turn up missing, would you? Typography could be improved. Are you guys selling the creepy butt shorts too? Yes, no time limit on these. It's Night Vale's fifth birthday tomorrow. Let's celebrate with a 110th episode. Thanks, everyone, for letting us make this show for you. Thank you for making the show. Heart emoji. Excited for at least another five years. Thank you. And the whole At Night Vale radio team for taking us to your quiet desert community. We'll never be the same for it. Heart emoji. It's fitting that my partner shares a birthday with Night Vale. Our first date was a live show, and at our second live show, you proposed. Emoji. Emoji. What about Canada? So I interviewed the hosts of Welcome to Night Vale, Jeffrey Fink and Joseph Craner, um, via Skype. So we've got to you okay. know, listen to them talking about it here. Just the audio might be a little bit thinner than some of that beautiful audio you recorded us. <laughs> um, and we sort of talked about where the project came from and the impetus for the project and the gestation of the ideas. Here they are giving a little summary of what the show is. Welcome to Night Vale is a fictional scripted podcast that takes the form of community radio updates from a small desert town in the southwestern United States. Um, basically a town where every conspiracy theory is true and people just kind of live with that and exist. 
when Joseph created the idea of Night Vale and then he recorded, he wrote and recorded that very first pilot episode. And, you know, the pilot episode is a lot of setup for a world that could possibly exist. And that world could have gone in so many different directions. But we decided early on that we this world could be anything we wanted it to be. It could go any direction. We could always do whatever we wanted as long as we were... Um, as long as we followed continuity and as long as we put it out on a regular schedule to compliment Joseph and his writing on that very first episode, it did set up a world that could be any number of things. And we've managed to always try to make it lots of different things, whether you talk about like eldritch horror, or if you talk about um, conspiracy theory or just straight up, just like a, f- a happy family drama. The great part of having a serial podcast is, is that there is no final page. There is no series finale. It's really, it's a world we can constantly flesh out. So we have a lot more room than, say, a novelist might have um, that by a certain page they need to wrap up their story. We don't have to wrap up our story. Uh, We can just keep that world growing in our heads. So welcome to Night Vale. It's a community radio show for an impossible town. It's hosted by Cecil Palmer. He's very calm, sort of warm and rich Who's voice. the voice of Nightvale Community Radio. And he's sort of, you know, and, and I was just to give you an example, let's play a little clip off Nightvale of the kind of what it feels like and what it sounds like. Hello, listeners. To start things off, I've been asked to read this brief notice. The City Council announces the opening of a new dog park at the corner of Earl and Somerset near the Ralphs. They would like to remind everyone that dogs are not allowed in the dog park. People are not allowed in the dog park. It is possible you will see hooded figures in the dog park. Do not approach them. Do not approach the dog park. The fence is electrified and highly dangerous. Try not to look at the dog park, and especially do not look for any period of time at the hooded figures. The dog park will not harm you. And now the news. Now the roots are welcome to my field, because most people listening to us now probably know what it is. But the roots of it, I think, are partly go back to some of the tropes of American speech radio. The interesting thing about Fink and Craner is they've actually come out of the New York theater scene. Did did they and the Wooster group duke it out in Soho from time to time? Actually, when I interviewed them, I did drop the Wooster group I bomb. I figured you of, would have. Yeah, <laughs> part of the theater company they might have heard of. But that's their background. And there's like this sort of tradition of the single voice performance. One person talking to an audience, holding that audience that kind of comes out of that off-off-Broadway scene. That was where they were coming from. Less than a homage to a radio history that they weren't actually actively part of. So not then referencing explicitly anyway, the tradition of radio monologue like Garrison Keillor, Sam Fader, or Gene Shepard. Yeah. And I think that they're kind of, one, the other thing about that format is that it's so cheap mm. to produce and it kind of worked for, for them. Here they are just talking about how they set up the show and their kind of early me- methodologies. You know, from the very start to now, um, Nightville has been something that is sort of through friends working together and making a show and, and whatever seems right to do is what we do. Um, but the podcasts 
to this day is still done, you know, with the USB microphone based on scripts that Jeffrey and I have written and signed off on. Um, and so I think Night Vale for me kind of came out of that same impulse of if you have an idea instead of waiting around and trying to pitch it, so you just start doing it and you start seeing if you can make it on your own. When we started out, I think we wanted it to be successful, although, you know, we, we worked hard because we like we have pride in our work. You know, when we, we were sort of fortunate in, in a lot of ways because of the, the way it blew up, we suddenly had a bunch of people coming at us wanting to do things. And we we hadn't really talked before about like, oh my gosh, this would be great if we could eventually make a movie of Night Vale or, or whatever. When people started showing interest in what we were doing, we realized we had a choice in what we could do. And the live shows were one of the first offshoots of the podcast we did because of our background in theater. Did you have any idea that it would resonate with that age group at all? I, I think trying to write for a particular demographic is poison for creativity. I think if you had gotten Jeffrey and I together and be like, write something that will appeal to a 13-year-old t- t- you know, girl, we would have no idea where to start. If you, if you try and write to a demographic, you're basically trying to be like, let me change my writing so that it will appeal to someone rather than just being like, I'm going to write something that works for me. Uh, you know, we have... Uh, Cecil and Carlos as kind of the major relationship of the show um, in a way that is sort of matter of fact. And that is not something that should be rare, but it unfortunately is. People hadn't seen that. And it's not because we did such an amazing job, I don't think, as so much as so much of culture is letting these kids down. You know, you know, it's that thing where you, you're always trying to challenge yourself, mix it up, keep it fresh. Uh, and find new ways to like subvert people's expectations a little bit. So in doing that, we've set up certain expectations of what the show is, and then we try and remind ourselves it's time to it's time to undermine that again, um, play around with that a little bit. So to go through the history of the show's growth, in about 2012, Night Vale comes out and it starts to get adopted by people on Tumblr. It's interesting around podcasts. Very often podcasts explode and grow with an association with a technological innovation or a piece of technology grows and a podcast grows alongside it. And obviously the biggest marriage between those things are Serial being released just after Apple baked in a podcast app into its iPhones. So they've got this relationship to an audience on Tumblr and they're quite a young audience and they're exhibiting fan-like behavior around it. They're creating memes, they're mashing images together. So Lance, what was it about Night Vale specifically that made it attract a particular kind of fan? They did something kind of quite clever with Night Vale. When it arrived, when I first heard it, it felt fully formed. It, well, I was amazed it hadn't been done previously. They use this, these images in our heads, but actually they gave us very little other visual imagery. Carlos, who's Cecil's partner, is uh, they, they mentioned that he's got magnificent she hair. He does have magnificent hair. And I once gave a talk where I said, okay, that's the only visual reference. And then a, a Night Vale fan came up to me after this sort of uh, paper. I said, no, 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 there's, there's another one. There's, a, there's another one. You've missed it. They say of um, Cecil that he's neither tall nor short. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. That <laughs> that's very precise, isn't it? By not giving you a lot of visual information, there's only the single Night Vale graphic. What they leave is a huge amount of space for the audience to come in and fill it with their imaginations as they listen, Mm. but also outside of that space, they can start playing. They can start making and creating. If, If you haven't looked around the amount of fan output around Night Vale, if you're on a device, if you're on a phone or on a computer at the moment, and just put in Night Vale fan art, Mm. and just press search and look at the images that come up, there'll be 
pages of the stuff, images and pictures that people are creating around this text. So with all of these fans producing all of this graphic art and all of these pieces of fan fiction based around their imagination, you would think that Fink and Craner feed it back into their own production work and their own writing. But in fact, when we asked them, they said clearly, no, they didn't. Oh, I mean, it would be impossible not to be aware of it. A lot of it, you know, is tweeted or emailed or all sorts of things at us. Um, you know, it, it's really awesome. Like, it's it's like any sort of fan culture. It's more about the fans than it is about us. Like, you know, in terms of, like, the wiki and stuff, that can be super useful. I've definitely <laughs> used the Nightfell wiki to check some continuity stuff or look up what episode certain things happened. But, you know, stuff like fan fiction, that's really awesome. We've Jeffrey and I have never read any of it. We never will. Um, just because it's kind of, you know, we want to keep that separate. We want to be able to have our own ideas and our own story without bleeding into their world or having their world bleed into ours. Um, you know, uh, at the shows, people will often show up in costume. And um, even if that's not necessarily what we thought the characters looked like, it doesn't really matter because it's what they thought it was. There's, uh, your work yeah, remains we, yeah, canon. Yeah, try not to keep our own ideas, yeah. We just kind of, like Joseph said, keep it at an arm's length just because it is, it's the fans' own world and I don't, I don't want to, like, take their ideas and I don't want them expecting us to to build things that they think need to happen. Uh, you know, the, the show is popular with our fans because we have always written it as we wanted to write the show. And so we feel like if it's going to continue to be popular, it needs to be the, the way we want to write it. And uh, so that's, that's really what it comes down to. So fans can create whatever they want as far as Fink and Craner are concerned. Exactly. So the, the images don't become part of of the canon. We could, you and I could write um, um, some fiction, we could write some Night Vale fiction now, and they wouldn't try to sue us, but they wouldn't necessarily draw it into the canon. They'd kind of respect its position without using it. So they appreciate it as fan engagement, um, but they are going to maintain their own canon about what is happening in Night Vale without any influence from uh, from the fans. And effort they're respectful of the fans' head canon. They don't change things because obviously if we've formed in our mind what a character looks like and then they suddenly announce that they've got green dreadlocks that'll break our head cannon and that'll then you know we'll go oh god i've been wrong for 50 episodes and we'll get disappointed and we'll disengage and they've done a dangerous thing though very recently they've signed a tv deal <gasps> So there is a Welcome to Night Vale TV series coming out, and that's dangerous territory. I feel my headcanon exploding already. Oh, yes, exactly. Well, the first thing that the fans are going to do is Cecil doesn't look like that, and the creature under the bed doesn't look like that, and the woman without a face doesn't look like that. It, it's a really risky thing to do, to take that property and create a set of imagery around it. The other fun thing is actually, go back to um, your search browser and uh, type in... Hold on, I'll do it right now. Yeah, come. Type in Welcome to Night Vale Cecil Images. I get billions. I'm going to get more than you. How are you going to get more than me? Are you looking at Cecil images? I am. I am. Look, look, I have him in a purple tie. Quite often he's in a waistcoat, white shirt. He's got a floppy white hair. He's got some, some of them, he's got sleeve tattoos. Oh, yeah. Without being told what this character looks like, they begin to agree on what he looks like. It's, it's like the thing of getting a group of people to clap. And they slowly start clapping in, in harmony. Unison, yeah. If we all start drawing Cecil Palmer, we all draw different Cecil Palmers. But over a number of years, we start to draw sleeve tattoos and white floppy hair. Yeah. And because we see them on the Internet and they're out there and they're, they feed our imagination. And then they become a, that becomes set canon. And it's kind of like it'd be interesting to see with the TV series whether they would then dare to break the fans interpretation and don't 
literally dis- disenfranchise them. So let's now finally, around Nightville, let's, let's talk about that gig we went to, Martin. Yes. So I remember that gig very, very clearly because you and I were the oldest ones there by at least 15 years, <laughs> first of all. Um, but, you know, we felt welcome. There were people who were engaging with us, coming up to us. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful space lit in that um, iconic Night Vale purple. Um, and Cecil Palmer strode out to the center of the chapel. And he was holding a script. And he was holding a script. And he was wearing, would you even remember what he was wearing? You know, I don't. But having seen the fan fiction was on the that. web, I'm thinking he must have been wearing a purple tie, but maybe not. Then various actors came and various people playing roles came in also holding scripts. Yes. Kind of wearing their day clothes. Yeah. And at first I was kind of disappointed. I thought, where's the show? Yeah. Remember, no I spectacle. Went, yeah. yeah. And I went there not as a Night Vale fan, um, but as someone observing it. And gradually I just realized it, it wasn't about the spectacle. No. It was kind of about us coming together to appreciate and to share in this kind of communal event. Absolutely. We were participating in something. It felt like we were a part of this ritual that was Night Vale. And it was also a bit interesting that it was happening in an old church, right? You know, mm. kind of, it had this kind of ritualistic quality about it. We were in a live audience. They were mostly, I'd say, 20 to 35. Yep. But they've got a big following with a younger audience still. My son's age, your daughter's age. Yeah. yeah. Like, like 13 to 18. Frank and Craner are probably a tiny bit younger than us. Yeah. It wasn't in their mind that they would write a Gen Z millennial drama. They were writing something for themselves and the group of people in that room. And you hear that. You hear that in the quality of their writing. There's a kind of immediacy and purity and a sense of fun. You know, it seemed to have come out of nowhere. And I think that authenticity is absolutely key to that relationship. And that's why they can do the things they do and get away with the things they do. Because they're, you know, it's not a a show where they're being told to do this. This is perhaps the key to this heightened engagement, both around that podcast and others. Yeah, and Helen Zaltzman, who now produces The Illusionist and used to work on Answer Me This, says something very similar about this idea of authenticity. So the people who are actually listening to your show, they have made a number of steps technologically to be listening to it and they have opted in and they have chosen you over everything else on the internet. Once they've done that, they are pretty devoted to it. Whereas radio, you you can walk into a room and the show is playing and so technically you're listening to it even if you don't really care. Um, and, and I think people are constantly underestimating their audiences um, in various different forms of media. I think that happens in radio a lot. Uh, where they have a specific demographic that they've often invented here. So like, you know, our demographic is a woman, she's single, she's 35 to 45. You know, she, she cries on a Friday night after she gets home from being out with her friends. And I'm like, that's so reductive. And also you're missing a lot of people who might enjoy the same content. This was something I learned through doing Answer Me This, where we, when we started it, we were in our mid-twenties and we thought we'd love to make a show that was the kind of thing we would have enjoyed when we were teenagers. And if we had tried to make a show for teenagers, it would have just been horrible. <laughs> it would have been excruciating. And teenagers know as well when people are talking down at yeah. them. Um, so we thought, well, we'll just try and make something that is fun. And teenagers were into it. But also we had like a lot of people of all ages, like right up to grandparents in their 80s listening to it. And if we had tried to attract those people, then I think we would have failed. But by just making a thing, then it, it determines its own demographic 
it's self-selecting isn't it the people who like a podcast because Mm. why would they listen to something they don't particularly like I i think the the listener relationship with a podcaster is closer than other forms of media and i think answer me this rip that large because we had so many of them um volunteering stuff about themselves because that was part of the show it it locked in this community around the show very quickly and people would come back to hear if their question was in a future episode or and they would tell people about the questions they'd had in and and stuff like that they send us some really inappropriate things for a comedy show they'll send us some really serious stuff that we can't use because you don't want to be sarcastic about someone who is self-harming or Mm. you know has an eating disorder or something like that and so it's worrying that they don't really have the support that they do need and they're trying to get it from a very inappropriate platform Mm. but also amazing that they feel that they can confide in us This is fundamental to, to broadcasting. It's an opt-in media. We choose, we make actually quite a lot of decisions when we download a podcast in a way that you don't make when you just click on a radio. Yeah, there's no captive audience. There's no reason to get invested. And if you think about traditional broadcasting, not only is the audience very often just happening across the show, when you, say, have a show commissioned by the BBC, someone else comes in and chooses that show for you. Yeah. You know, when I put in a show for Radio 4, I have to shape it to their audience, not my audience. Yeah, and not you. And not me. to their target audience. Yeah, and then I and I even talk differently. My Radio 4 voice is slightly like I'm talking down to you. Oh, it's a bit posh, isn't no, it? No, it isn't, actually. No, I'll just put that on. You won't believe the miniature art that is part of the English scene at the moment. Wow. I have to do this with my mouth. Your mouth is and, moving and dramatically. More. As, as if you're speaking Italian. And there, from there, that, that's what authenticity means in this case. It comes from people wanting and choosing to do something, which is why branded podcasting is in a... I'm not sure whether it makes sense. I'm thinking of Gimlet Media, who do now lots of branded podcasts. The thing about branded content is that they're being paid to say those words. Whereas on a podcast, it's quite a direct relationship. You're in control of that because you decided on who the, who the audience is and you have that relationship to them. And it becomes more of a mutual Yeah. Relationship. So, not to derail Gimlet's gravy train, but do you think these branded content podcasts are going to survive? Unless the identity of the audience and what they want from podcasting changes, I can't understand why they exist. But this kind of opens up questions about freedom, about independence, and about financing of podcasts. Mm. And we're going to take a pause on this now. And we're going to talk about this in a later episode. And we're going to come back to this authenticity question, which we haven't quite nailed, I don't think. No. So do you mind if we wrap up now? I think that's a great idea. I'm, I, I'm exhausted. Is that your authentic response? Or are you just saying that because you wrote it there? Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know. that's an authentic pause afterwards. <laughs> that's an authentic pregnant pause. This has been For Your Ears Only, and we've been talking about podcast audiences. You can follow us on social media at Ears Only Podcast. And if anything we've said in this episode or any other episode has intrigued you or interested you in any way, you can find out loads more in our book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, which has come out with Bloomsbury. Hang on. Yeah? Are you technically being paid to say that? I think it's going to be a long time before our royalties kick in. Is this a branded podcast? (laughs) You know, it might be, but it feels so authentic, Lance. Mm. 
Anyway, I'm Lon Stan. And I'm Martin Spinelli. And goodbye. For Your Ears Only was produced by Ella Gray Thomas and Jack F. Dewars. This episode was written and presented by Lance Dan and Martin Spinelli, and Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound, and Rachel Sparks and Ian McKenna were our actors. We had support from Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing, and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex, and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM and we had support in our initial interviews from a British Academy Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com. <laughs>